Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. I'm going to lower this music stand because they were, they thought I was a lot taller than I actually am. Uh, my hidden talent is I can do an impression of a whipped cream can that is running low. All right, all right. Well, uh, Good morning, everybody. I hope everyone's doing well this morning. Uh, I want to introduce myself a little bit further. My name is Matt Abad. Uh, I had the honor of serving pastorally here for four years, uh, from 2016 to 2020. And in my time here, I met some of the most inspiring people and experienced some of the most um, just amazing works of the Lord that, that have shaped me and grown me in my life forever. Uh, I want to say thank you to Pastor Nick for giving me the opportunity to, to borrow the podium for the Sunday. Pastor Nick's amazing, right? So, my very first Sunday in Washington, uh, Nick was ordained as a pastor along with James. Um, and it was, it was just really cool to get to know him because he was just a really relatable guy. And I was like, oh, these are the people who are serving in this church. This is where I want to be. And then uh, Nick invited me out to Pha. And if you got someone who will take you to Pha with barely knowing you, that's like, that's prime, primo good stuff there. Uh, but Nick is somebody that I've, I've, I've looked to as an example as a, as a pastor, as a, a protector of his congregation as a father and as a husband, and I love him very much, and so I'm very pleased to be able to be here. So thank you very much. Um, I want to open us up in prayer. Let's do that. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather here today, uh, walking through the doors and just uh, looking around and seeing the little idiosyncrasies of the building, the uh, cracked glass pieces that I actually did my bad, uh, <laughs> on the dividing door and uh, the place where we removed two rows of pews and just looking at the pews themselves and thinking of this as a hallowed place. This is a place where people have gathered in your name and worshiped you for over a hundred years. This is a place of legacy and as right now, as we're praying to the same God that they prayed to a century ago in this building, we are joining a cloud of witnesses in realigning humanity, doing what we were made to do, to have fellowship with you, to praise you, and to learn from you. Father, this morning there's just so much to say. There's so much to unpack. And so I ask that you would, in your grace, help me to be focused, and that you would trim back the, the fat and allow your word to shine through. You are powerful and you are beautiful. You are our father, you're our dad, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. For today's sermon, I want to prompt us by asking a question. Have you ever made a big mistake? <laughs> Lots of them. Yeah, yeah, we, we make mistakes every single day. Uh, I make mistakes as simple as, ooh, I had too much coffee, and now I'm hyper, and I'm overwhelming this person in a job interview. I, you make these in mistakes all the time, but I, I'm talking about the really, really big ones. Have you ever made a massive mistake that it changed you? It changed your identity, and, and who you were before you made that error is no longer who you are. You look back on the way things were yesterday and you're now standing in a cataclysm, a chaos, a mess. 
I think all of us have had at least one of those moments in our lives. And I think probably it's common for us to have a handful of those. It's something extremely human. And I'm just going to jump right into it today and say, I've had moments like that. And I, and I would like for us as a family in Christ to walk with me as I kind of share with you guys a little bit of the journey of what I've gone through these last three years. Because uh, three years ago, almost to the day, it was September, I, I stepped down from pastoring here. At that time in my life, I was serving super hard and I was really trying my best. And to, in, in my own understanding of who I was as a human being, it was the best version of me that I had ever been in my life. I had a beautiful family and I had three lovely children, two of my own and a foster daughter who I loved really much. And at that time, my marriage was really struggling for a whole litany of reasons. And it had occurred to me that my role as a husband, which was intermingled with my role as being a father, was more important than my role being a husband. Or, it was more important than my role being a pastor, is what I meant. And, and I looked at my life, and I thought, my congregation, my flock feels loved, and my wife does not. And this can't be so. It's not what God has called me to be as a man. So I, I stepped down pastorally with the hope of repairing my marriage and coming back to serve this flock again. But it didn't work out as I planned. My marriage ended in divorce. My foster daughter was placed into another home and I never saw her again. And the chil my children and I were only seeing each other half the week, rebuilding as a single father home with two kids. And I looked back on the cataclysm of like, how, why did all these things happen to me? Was this all my fault? Did I do so badly that all these bad things had to happen to me? Now, I, I think that question, even though you've not shared the same experience with me, I think that question is an extremely human question. Why did this happen? Am I this bad? Why did this happen to me? And if you think back on that cataclysmic mistake that you've made in your life, I think you'll find that you've asked yourself that before. And that's the question that has been buzzing around in my brain for the last three years. And by God's grace, I feel that he's answered me in that. And I want to share that with you. Because I don't know how you dealt with your cataclysmic error, but I imagine it was something a little bit more like enough time had passed. Or you moved to a different city or you found a substance that made it a little bit easier to navigate. And I think that God, in his grace, has provided for us a much better answer. Now, that question, why did this happen? Whose fault is this? Is this my fault? When I struggled with that, my, uh, I had this dichotomy, and it was like, hey, if I'm this bad and I got what I deserved, well, then I take my licks. God, you let me know if I've gotten exactly what I've deserved, and you and I will walk with that. That's okay. I just need to know. Or, on the other hand, if, you know, this is just bad things that happen in life, let me know that so I don't have to feel the guilt of how terrible I may have been. And the question is simply, where does the blame lie? Extremely human question. I think it's common to all of us. 
And when we face the cataclysm following a big failure, we play this game back and forth. So digging into scripture, we're going to find resolution to the blame game, and we're going to do it by digging into one of the most riveting parts of scripture that we know, a writ of legislature. Hear, hear. And not just any legislature, this is ancient Israelite zoning law. Anyone? Do you guys love zoning law? Uh, You know, reading... Reading the passages of the law may not sound exciting. It may not have the direct application of an epistle or the drama and the engagement of a narrative, but I genuinely find reading the law in Scripture fascinating. The first five books of the Bible, which contain narrative, which contain natures of epistle, those first five books are traditionally called the Mosaic Law. And the reason I think the Mosaic Law is fascinating, it's because without exception, when you study a law, you find out the values of the lawmaker. Always. We don't make laws about flippant things. We don't make laws about uh, what flavor of gum they can create. We make laws about how fast you're allowed to drive down a suburb. Here in Seattle... We're a republic, so the people, we, we try to make the laws. And, and on my, my tent making, my, my normal job, I work in property management. And I can tell you that here in Seattle, we care about fair housing because i got to navigate a lot of laws. They tell me what notices I've got to post, what notices I have to send by mail, which notices I have to put in mail and post, what size fonts I need to use, what I can tell people when I can tell them, how I can text people, and how I can talk to them verbally. All of these things because we are trying to prevent discrimination in the housing of our culture. That's a good thing. I think you guys probably feel like, yeah, that's valuable. We don't want to be discriminating against people renting homes and buying homes, and you should feel that way. You're a Seattleite. But what is fascinating about studying the Mosaic Law is that contrary to what that name sounds like, Moses, the man who wrote it, did not devise it. When we read the Mosaic Law, we don't find out what was important to Moses we find out what was important to the lawmaker, and the lawmaker who revealed it to Moses is God in heaven. Now, in order for us to really get why the revelation of God is so beautiful, we need to know that we as human beings have lost our familiarity with God. In in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, it says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, but then when Adam fell into sin, God was walking in the midst of the garden, and Adam hid, and his wife hid. She would come to be named Eve. Adam and Eve hid. And if you will, for me, for the sake of the development of this sermon, imagine yourself hiding from God behind a tree, in a bush, somewhere, and all that you can picture in God is obscured by the things you're hiding behind. Just a minor glimpse of the God who is walking to commune with you. That is the human condition. We have lost our familiarity with God, and so God is progressively revealing himself to humanity again by way of his law, because law reveals the heart of the lawmaker. 
And we'll see today as we study a few different laws that as God builds upon the laws that he's made from one generation to the next, he's progressively more and more revealing who he is more and more, that we may know who that God is who's walking in the garden, calling us by name. If you will, feel free to rise if you'd like. I'm going to read today's passage. Today we're in the book of Numbers, Uh, The second to last chapter of Numbers, the penultimate chapter of Numbers, I learned that word, Uh, Numbers 35. Numbers is towards the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then if you hit Deuteronomy, you're almost there because we're at the end of the book of Numbers. Numbers 35, verses 9, and I'm going to read all the way through 28, so if you need to have a seat before I get to the end, feel free. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer." The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he strikes him with a stone in the hand, by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon, by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred, or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Round in third here, verse 22. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies, while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in a city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Zoning law, huh? Verses 9 through 15 are kind of that zoning law portion. Uh, God, by way of Moses, he 
commands that there be six cities of refuge, and he tells Moses where to put them. He says, put three on this side of the Jordan and three in the land of Canaan. The reason that is, is because as the Israelites were coming into what they called the promised land, uh, two and a half of the 12 tribes saw the land on the east side of the Jordan. We're like, hey, we like this. Can we stay here once this becomes Israel? And they're like, yeah, sure. And so God recognizes that this, the nation of Israel geographically will be divided in two. And so God says, let's make this six cities of refuge. You put three on that side of the Jordan, three on this side of the Jordan. He wants it to be equidistant for anybody who is in the land. He wants it accessible. And interestingly enough, he says that he wants these cities of refuge to be for the children of Israel, the sojourner, a stranger in the land. That means that these cities are accessible to anybody who might be passing through the land. It's important to note that when we read the Mosaic Law, not all of the laws are for everybody. A lot of them are just for native-born Israelites. So this one is more open and available. And what, what is it? It's a social program. It's an asylum program. What a city of refuge is, is described here in verse 15. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. Accidentally. So if somebody kills somebody accidentally, they run to the city of refuge. And God found this asylum program so needed that he didn't want one of them. He wanted six of them, equidistant throughout the country, because failing big time accidentally is a human experience. Now, I don't know what your memory of your cataclysmic failure is, but I think an accidental killing is a pretty good archetype. Um, we said law reveals the heart of the lawmaker, and Mosaic law reveals the heart of the creator God, the God in heaven obscured since Adam hid in the garden. And in this passage, we see something about God's heart, but before we go there, I want to flash back for a second to its predecessor, because we're going to call this Mark 2 of the law of killing. Let's go to the first one. The first one is back in Genesis 9. This is just after God has, you can turn there if you want to, feel free. That's awesome. Do your thing. Genesis 9. Um, I believe we're just going to touch on verse 6. This is after God has judged the entire world by flood. Okay, now, I want to talk about that, but I can't. Uh, So God destroys the entire world by flood. There's only eight people that survive this judgment. And when Noah and his family, the other seven members of his family, when they exit the ark on dry land, Noah decides to build an altar and worship God. And when he's worshiping God, God speaks to Noah. And he tells him two things. One, he sets um, a precedent value. And then two, he gives him a law. A little odd. But first he tells Noah that blood is holy. And then he gives Noah this law. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This, to many Jewish theologians, is considered the seed of all human law, the seed of all human government. And rightly so, because God is revealing this to the head of 
the only existing human nation at the time. Noah, the head of his household of eight. And God says, okay, you're building a social structure now. And start here. Blood is holy. So if anybody kills another person, you got to kill them. It's blood for blood. Simple, black and white. Indiscriminate. Maybe even unfeeling. Blood for blood. Some person kills another person, you take them out. And it's interesting that according to the Bible, we're all descendants of Noah. And by and large, that principle is kind of still alive today in cultures across the world. Even here in the United States, uh, murder is one of the few crimes that are still punishable by death in many states here. Now, if, if law reveals the heart of the lawmaker, what is this law, the seat of all human government, the seat of all human law, what does that reveal about the God obscured from the hidden? It reveals that God values life. Even the God who just judged the entire world and took out everybody else, he tells them, judgment, that's my job. Death is judgment. Judgment is my job. And if anybody hurts another person, you require recompense for that with their life. We learn that about God, that he values life. And that brings us back to our passage for today, Numbers 35. If we learned in its predecessor, Genesis 9, that God values life, what do we learn about the, about the lawmaker from Numbers 35? Numbers 35, that takes into consideration, what if somebody does something horrible by accident? We learn that God has compassion for that. And if law is progressively revealing the heavenly God to earthly people. This is not God changing, it's God clarifying. Yes, I'm a God who values life, but yes, I'm also a God who considers your intentions, who understands your failures. Now, there's, there's two players in these scenarios. One is the avenger of blood. In our culture, we have a judiciary system, right? We have a judiciary system whose job is to apprehend a criminal, try that criminal, and then carry out sentencing if necessary. In the time of Noah, all the way through Moses and a little time following, they didn't have that same system. It was more familial, even tribal. So what was common is if, let's, let's say, hypothetically, somebody kills someone, the deceased person's relatives would appoint a member of the family to be the avenger of blood. It was their job to go out and find the person who killed their family member and enact justice to take them out. They were legally allowed to take justice into their hands. It wasn't vigilantism. It was what was required. That's the first player, the avenger of blood. The second player in here is what the passage calls the manslayer. And I think it's kind of a tragic figure. So, without reading back through the passage, the, the manslayer is someone who kills another person in the heat of the moment. He gets upset for a second, pushes the person, the person slips, falls, bangs their head, they die. The manslayer is um, a klutz. The, the manslayer, hypothetically, is somebody who's out in the woods, throws a rock, doesn't realize somebody's over there, hits somebody in the head, that person dies. You'll forgive the term, but the manslayer is a bit of a schmo. The, 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 my favorite 
passage about a manslayer is actually in the recapitulation of this law in Deuteronomy 19. This is a hypothetical situation that Moses gives. He says, say a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor on the head so he dies. The manslayer. Now, can you imagine that feeling? I don't imagine any of you guys go chopping wood with your neighbors. You probably have enough social anxiety. You probably don't talk to your neighbors. I, I have that. But, but you can imagine what that feels like. You can probably relate to what that feels like. This is somebody just going about their day, doing the best that they can, and fouls up horribly, harms somebody irreparably, and changes everybody's lives in the midst. We've all made those kinds of errors. Before we unpack that, let's, let's just fan through quickly some of the technicalities, the, the technical functions of this law. I think they're interesting. Someone's killed, and their killer would like to claim manslaughter. So if, if this man is claiming manslaughter, his job is to run as quickly as he can to the nearest of the three cities of refuge. It's a race. It's a race between him and the avenger of blood because now somebody's been appointed to kill him. If the manslayer gets within the, the walls of the city of refuge before the avenger of blood, MC Hammer rules. Can't touch this. <laughs> but if the avenger of blood catches up to the manslayer outside of the city walls, the avenger of blood has every legal right to enact justice. Nobody can say, hey, he was trying to get there. If he didn't get there fast enough, bets are off. Now, if the Avenger of blood gets to the city second, and the manslayer is within the city, then it follows a trial. And it's really interesting the way it works. You know, I, I think we as a culture too quickly dismiss ancient laws as archaic and barbaric and prejudicial. Pre this is not. This is very well organized. So the manslayer gets to live in the city of refuge. Then they gather a congregation as a tribunal. They look at the evidences. They say, hey, did you, uh, did you hate the guy before you killed him? No, I was just chopping wood. I'm like, ah, oh, oh, interesting. And they, they have this tribunal, and on the other side of it, they make a determination. And if he is, if the evidence proves that he's a murderer, then the avenger of blood gets his prize. They turn over the manslayer to the avenger of blood. But if enough doubt is cast, if there's not any enough witnesses, they will not sentence the manslayer to death. Instead, they will say, okay, we're going to give the verdict. This is manslaughter. This was an accident. But there's still a punishment required. Somebody has died. Lives have been changed forever. So this person, this manslayer, has to live in the city of refuge uh, and serve out a sentence. He has to live there until the high priest dies. It's kind of an indeterminate time. It's not a number of years. It's just until somewhat arbitrarily the high priest dies. And then he can go home. Um, and, then, and there's limits to this. Even if, thing, even if this person is deemed a manslayer, if they ever exit out of the city before their sentence is carried out, the avenger of blood has every legal right to kill them. You kind of think of the avenger of blood almost like circling the city, saying, oh, just show your face, just step one foot out of there. There are limits to this. But the, the biggest blaring limit is the question of murder. This, this passage 
uses two uh, two titles, manslaughter or murder, two determinations of a happening of somebody killing somebody another regardless. But if somebody is deemed a murderer, they need not apply to the city of refuge. There is no mercy, no abiding, no forgiveness, no three-strike rule for the person deemed a murderer. And, and what are the qualifications of, the, of a murderer here in the passage? There are namely three qualifiers. Um, I'll just summarize them rather than reading back through. Let's say deadly weapon, um, motive, and premeditation. So hey, even if you didn't hate him before, you hit him with a big wooden weapon, that's murder. You should have known that would have killed him. Uh, motive, you hated this guy. It's all too convenient that he accidentally died at your hands. Premeditation, you were waiting for him to come home before you threw that stone. And if somebody is deemed a murderer, they're turned over to the avenger of blood so that way justice can be enacted. We learned in Genesis 9, God values life. And judgment is his. Now, I do want to highlight that this passage says this. One witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for death penalty. This law ancient though it may be, is not archaic, it's not barbaric, it's not prejudicial, it's very thoughtful. Um, it's, because of the, it's because of this dichotomy between manslaughter and murder that I wanted to explore this passage for you today. Again, accidentally killing somebody or intentionally killing somebody is a good archetype for a sin, a failure that will change your life forever and change the lives of the people involved forever. The trial of this passage, determining what was the intention behind the mistake, I think that is much like the mini tribunal that we run through our hearts and through our minds when we look back on a regret of ours. A lot of us will wonder, did this happen to me because I'm really bad, or is this a really bad thing that happened to me? What, who's to blame? And it's, it's this... It's this kind of question that I struggled with for the last three years. And I, I looked back and I, I saw that I failed on restoring my marriage. I failed to return to my flock. I failed my children and I lost my foster daughter. And I, and I would wonder, did all this happen because of an accidental weakness of mine? The responsibilities were too high, and try as I could, I didn't reach those heights? Or did I destroy my own life out of my own wickedness? Manslaughter, murder, who killed the life that I enjoyed? Was it circumstantial? Was it me? Am I outside of the qualifications of mercy and protection would I be let into the city of refuge for my failures or am I damned? I've walked through this question the last three years and I, I think that probably all of us have asked those kinds of questions for our similar failures. And if that's you today, if you're plagued by the question or if you're even too afraid to ask, I ask you to stick with me because there's one more revelation that we want to touch on today. 
And if God is progressively revealing himself to humanity throughout history, I want to go to one more place. Paul says in his, that the law, it's our schoolmaster until faith comes, faith in Christ. Paul also said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And far from the accusation that Jesus is a toned-down version of the God of the Old Testament, we learn from Scripture quite the opposite. Jesus is the unobscured picture of the God humanity has separated from. If ever since Adam hid in the garden, God has been obscured, this, Jesus is God revealed. If God is progressively revealing his heart through his law throughout history, Jesus is God's heart laid bare. And if we're dealing with the topic of death as an archetype for our failures, we've made our way from the law of Genesis 9 to Numbers 35. The topic of death comes to a head here in Luke 23 when Jesus himself is being put to death. Jesus, God in full revelation, the, inv- the image of the invisible God. To see the full glory beyond the glimpse of God's heart is to look how Jesus' attitude is towards his killers. We need to look no further than Jesus because he is God himself. Luke 23 33 through 34 says this. When they had come to the place called Calvary, not this, different Calvary. When they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The trial of Numbers 35 is entirely about intentions, right? How did the, why did this person die? What did they mean to do? What, did, what happened? And Jesus says here, the people who were killing him didn't know what they were doing. God forgive them. They don't know their intentions. Now, do you remember the qualifications we discussed for a murder? A deadly weapon, motive, premeditation, all those things are present in the execution of Jesus. Deadly weapon, they scourged Jesus with an instrument that killed most of its victims. They executed Jesus on a cross, which was a finely tuned instrument of worship, and it was the version of execution that his enemies wanted for him. Deadly weapon. Motive. Scripture says that Jesus' accusers hated him because he was turning the hearts of the people against them. They had the motive. Premeditation. They lied in wait for Jesus. And they had him executed on a specific day so they could make it home to celebrate the Passover with their families. This is murder. And yet the judge, the high judge over the entire universe says, forgive them for they know not what they do. So what does Jesus mean by that? They don't know what they're doing. Why does Jesus plead that they be forgiven? I think it's this. The heart of Jesus understands that as wicked as these people could be, and they're some of the worst, 
there's no possible way they had the cosmic knowledge of the gravity of their failures. They know not what they do. Try as they may to destroy Jesus. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize they're killing the God that loves him. Jesus extends to them mercy because these wicked men are menial creatures who can't possibly comprehend that. He looks merciful at their ignorance and he thinks, he determines that their ignorance is far beyond their intention and he's compassionate that they'd be so self-destructive. The law may reveal God's heart, but this is exactly God's heart. It is a boundless level of understanding and a mercy that extends beyond the limits of an asylum program. God's mercy is even extended to the intentionally destructive. His mercy is that great because he views us as his children. And he views us as, our, as his children who are naive to the gravity of our failures. That is who God is. If the law is revealing God progressively to a world that has lost sight of him, this is exactly, precisely who he is. It is a mercy that's greater than the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge that have limits. Don't step out of them. The cities of refuge that have limits. You meant to do what you did. You're not welcome here. This passage brings to mind for me Romans 8, 38 through 39. You can turn there if you'd like, and I'm going to read it. This is Paul talking, a man who is self-proclaimed as a murderer. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Oh, excuse me. I skipped a line. Just go back. Nor or omitted passages, I think. Uh, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not even our intentions, not our best intentions, can absolve us of our failures. Not our worst intentions can escape us from the mercy that God has for us. For the years that followed my departure as a pastor serving in this church, for the years that followed uh, my divorce, I wrestled with God. Tell me why this happened. Did I do such a bad job? Or did a really bad thing happen in my life? Which is it? Let me know what it is so that way I can be repentant of it. And I just felt like I wasn't ever getting an answer. And, um, you know, just a, a few months ago, I was, I was doing Bible study with my kids in their bedroom, and it was thick into the context of life following my mistake. It was the three of us. My ex-wife not there because we're divorced. My foster daughter not there because I never got to see her again. And we came to Numbers 35, and I read this trial, and I asked God, this is it. This is exactly what I'm talking about. What was my intention? Am I a manslayer? Am I a murderer? Forgive me one way or another, but tell me what it is I need to apologize for. And like a still small voice, I got neither yes nor no, but this passage in Luke 23 came through. 
Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And it hit me that whether by happenstance or heinousness, there's mercy on the other side for me following the cataclysm. And I think that that is the heart of God that he wants to share today. His heart laid bare. The full revelation of his character is there is mercy for all of us. There's understanding, consideration, forgiveness available no matter what it is we've done. Whether we didn't mean to do what we did or whether we meant to do it because sometimes we meant to do it. There's mercy available regardless. Now, Please don't misunderstand me. God's immense heart for mercy, his understanding for us, his consideration, it's not the same as his forgiveness for us. His compassion, as shown in Numbers 35, his compassion, as shown in Luke 23, that is an open door available to all of us. It's an invitation for us to enter into it. We talked about back in Numbers 35, that it's a race once something horrible has happened, right? This man or this woman has to run to the city of refuge. Hopefully they get there in time. There is an engagement required, a response required. There is a mercy available for that person, but they need to obtain it. It's not given to them without response. And that for us is repentance. Repentance for the thing that happened in our life, even if we don't know why we did it, intentionally, unintentionally. Repentance has to be initiated. And I assure you that if you're brave enough to dig into that memory that maybe you've stowed away, if you're brave enough to dig into that memory and you bring it before the Lord and say, I don't know why this happened, but this is what I have. Father, forgive me. Father, save me. Take this weight from me. If you're brave enough to do that, I assure you there's forgiveness for you. There's salvation for you. Don't get lost wondering why something happened. Don't waste your years like I did. Quickly receive the forgiveness because it's beautiful and available. You know, I've been told that a sermon should always have a call to action. And I would say that that is it. Get repentant. Get thinking about the thing that you've stashed away. Think of, get to thinking about the thing that you've blinded out with substance. Get to thinking about the thing that happened in your old town before you moved. Get to thinking about those things. Bring them before Jesus. Have that repentance. But there's also something that we need to hear today in the way that we interact with one another in this room and the other people in our lives. We've talked about a glorious availability to forgiveness from us. Availed to us at the cost of Jesus' death on the cross. Availed to us, and we grab hold of those things. Far be it from us to not forgive those who have wronged us. We're all perpetrators of great damage, but we're all victims of great damage. We've all been hurt deeply by other people. And Ephesians 4 says it like this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ's God forgave you. 
we follow Jesus' example. He set the example as he was being executed, forgiving them right in that moment. We may not be as quick as Jesus, but we better get our act together because we've been forgiven. So how could we withhold forgiveness from others? Before I go, I also want to ask you for forgiveness because whether I meant to or not, I failed you as a pastor. Paul says that an important qualification of a pastor is to be able to manage his household. And for me, I I read those things as, as being able to heal my marriage, to do whatever I can to save my marriage. And like it or not, I, I wasn't able to do that. And because of that, I, I wasn't able to come back. I left rather abruptly because I thought I'd be back swiftly, and it didn't happen. And so if there's anybody here in this room or listening to a recording that my abruptness of leaving, if, if that hurt you, I, I deeply apologize. I'm a weak man riddled with failures, but by God's grace, the Lord has forgiven us. He's forgiven me. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering why these things happened, and I really don't want you guys to spend the rest of your lives wondering why bad things have happened in your life. Just receive the glorious revelation of the God in heaven. Stop hiding because the God who is revealed is so good and so loving toward you. Let's pray. Holy Father, we've lost sight of you since our forefather Adam hid in the garden. We wonder what you're like. We get confused about your person. And that won't stand for you. You intentionally continue to reveal yourself to us more and more throughout history, even up into today, even until your glorious return, even toward our glorious return to you in your heavenly kingdom. We will learn more and more who you actually are, not this obscured version of you that we can only see from the hidden places. Jesus, we thank you that you look at our sin and see our our ignorance far beyond our intentions. It's not our intentions that make us innocent. It's your forgiveness and your payment for our sins that make us innocent. And this morning we glory and we revel in the new life, in the redemption that's found in you. We are not our failures. We are purchased by a price, by a God who forgives us. Help us to be forgiving towards other people too. We are a new creation, a new life in Christ Jesus. And it's in your name that we worship and pray. Amen.